Acts chapter 3. We closed Acts chapter 2 with the Lord adding to the church daily those who were being saved. And this was taking place because this new church of 3,120 people were, as we're told, continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and in prayers. Well, in Acts 2 verse 43, Luke sets the context for this particular chapter by telling his readers that fear in response to this new work of the Holy Spirit, this new uh, work through the church, that fear, it's a weird transition, Fear came upon every soul, since many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. We noted last Sunday that this collective fear that arose, it came from the reality that though the people couldn't dispute the fact that something miraculous, something supernatural was taking place, it was obvious, it was evident, it couldn't be denied. The problem, what freaked everybody out, is that you couldn't attribute this new work to just one man, like you could have in the Old Testament with the prophets or with Jesus or John the Baptist. As Luke points out, these miracles were being done how? By the apostles? No. We're told specifically that these miracles, these signs and wonders were being done how? Through the apostles. It was evident, not just to the church, but to even the bystanders, the masses at large, that there was this one force singularly working through a multitude of people. And with no one person behind the move of God, there would be no one, one way that you could stop its spread or its impact. We get to chapter 3, verse 1, that now Peter and John, they went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a certain lame man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful. He was laid there to ask alms from those who entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. As we do often, let's set the scene. Let's try to get ourselves into the moment to try to unpack what's happening. Luke, as we noted in our first study, is writing the book of Acts with the intention of producing a historical account of how a movement that was started by Jesus of Nazareth, how it continued through his followers. We noted that in our first study, the book of Acts shouldn't be titled, as many of your Bibles do, the Acts of the Disciples, but should instead be titled the Acts of Jesus, the actions of Jesus through his church. Though we don't know how much time transpires between the close of chapter 2 and the opening of chapter 3, between Pentecost and this particular day. Luke, he includes this event for a very specific reason. His intention is to make it clear to his audience in the present and us today that this work, this power of the Holy Spirit that was working in the church and through the members of the church, it was occurring on a daily basis and that it wasn't a one-off event. It wasn't that the power of the Holy Spirit was granted to these people on Pentecost. The power of the Holy Spirit enabled them to live a life of daily service to the Lord. With this context in mind, it's significant that chapter 3 opens with Peter and John going together to the temple at the hour of prayer. First, since both Peter and John would play a tremendous role 
and the leadership of the church and the spread of the gospel throughout the world, Luke, writing history, obviously centers his narrative on these two characters as opposed to the others. The work of the Holy Spirit through the church, through the apostles, wasn't limited to just Peter and John. It was happening across the board. Many, many people, all kinds of occasions. Luke could have been writing story after story after story, recounting event after event after event of similar things happening, taking place. But he focuses on just two guys, Peter and John, for a reason. And that reason is that those two guys play such a specific role in the history of the church and the spread of the gospel that they needed to be included in the history. For example, John. John would pastor several churches throughout his lifetime. Most notably would be the church in Ephesus. He would contribute a gospel, three epistles, and the book of Revelation to scripture. Peter would not only act as the spokesman for the first century church, but he would also play an instrumental role in the gospel moving from Jewish communities to the Gentile world, Acts chapter 10. Beyond these two significant contributions, Peter would add two epistles to scripture, and his account of the life of Jesus and his ministry would be written down by his assistant, Mark. It would become also a gospel. So these two guys become central characters because of the role they play in the history of which Luke is recording. But there's another reason I think Luke centers our attention on these two cats. You see, in continuing with the idea that the manifestation of the Spirit of God was producing both unity and community within the church, Luke centers on these two guys working together because it's a perfect example of this moving of the Spirit of God. You know, while it's true that these two men had history before they had ever encountered Jesus, according to the Gospels, both men were fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. Though they had this relationship before and they would spend three years as being part of Jesus's inner circle, There was so much about them that make them the most unlikely of partners. So much about Peter and John make this idea of these two men working together kind of bizarre. First, you should note that in regards to Peter and John, there was a generational gap between these two men. Peter was the oldest of the apostles. John was the youngest. He was a kid. Secondly, we're also told that their personalities from what we examine in scripture were also kind of polar opposites, that they were really different in regards to how they processed things, how they made decisions. For fun, we kind of compiled together a character sketch of John and Peter using a loose Myers-Briggs personality test. And if you do so, you'll see the differences. For example, John, though you can't say with certainty because, well, Uh, We only have their writing, and we only have limited history, so it's hard to develop a personality of someone that lived 2,000 years ago. But I think it's pretty solid that John would have been what we call an INFP healer. I stands for the fact that John was probably introverted in that he was flexible, but that he was experienced and gut-driven. F, that he was people-centered. P, that he was informative. We're told that that these healers are people that are introspective, cooperative, informative, and attentive. Their tranquil and reserved exterior mask a very passionate inner life. 
Healers care deeply about causes that interest them and often pursue those causes with selfless devotion. If you know anything of John, this sounds a lot like this individual. Very experiential. His writings are about love. Peter, total opposite though. You see, Peter would have been an ESTJ supervisor. E standing for the fact that Peter was extroverted. Oh, and we know that Peter was extroverted, right? Peter had no problems opening mouth and inserting foot up to his knee. He was extroverted, right, wrong? He'd jump out there into the mix. S, he was inflexible. He was structured. He was traditional. It also sounds like Peter, right? T, he was principled-centered. And J, he was directive We're told that these people are civic-minded individuals who dedicate themselves to maintaining the institutions behind a smooth-running society. They often rise to positions of leadership and service organizations, defending the values of the group in which they belong. Supervisors are strong believers in rules and procedures. (laughs) Sounds a lot like Peter, doesn't it? So we find here that there's two things about these men that make them the most unlikely of dynamic duos, the age gap and their personality gap. I bring up these differences because most old, young, or INFPESTJ combinations, yeah, that was a mouthful, I know, they're naturally, normally, and capable of working together. Now, 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 why would Luke focus on Peter and John? Well, aside from the fact that they play a role in history, they, that partnership, well, it's really proof of the power of the Holy Spirit producing unity and community and people that have very little in common. You see, the personality or age differences that exist between these two groups often drive a wedge that's too deep to overcome. As we know, this happens because most of the parties involved refuse to A, recognize, or B, appreciate what the different group brings to the equation. Friction, not unity, is often the result when we combine varying ages or personalities. That said, under the power and directive of the Holy Spirit, Peter and John, guys that would have never hung out apart from Jesus, they not only work together, but they become Batman and Robin, Orville and Wilbur. I mean, they become a great team because each of them was willing to move beyond their differences by recognizing and appreciating the other's age experience and their diversity of personality for the greater purpose of furthering the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Spirit was able to produce a well-rounded pairing. And I believe the lesson for the church is profound. For the church is healthiest and it's most effective when its leadership has a diversity of age and a diversity of personality. I've seen it, that when the flesh reigns supreme, age groups divide. We have old churches and young churches. Conflicting personalities are allowed to drive an insurmountable wedge causing church division. But when we allow the Spirit to reign supreme, like we see with Peter and John, different age groups and varying personalities choose to recognize the natural differences that they have and appreciate the unique way that God has wired each person, 
And in doing so, they can commit to the belief that we're actually better working together than we are apart. Please, you, please, please realize that unity, when we talk about unity, unity within the church, unity is not uniformity. It doesn't mean we're all the same. What it means is that it describes the result of people choosing to unify in spite of the, their diversity, knowing that the combination of different people and different ages is actually essential to accomplishing a greater purpose. Luke tells us that this duo, what do they do? Today, a new day, they make their way to the temple. We're told during the ninth hour of prayer. This is specific. In Judaism, there were three hours that were dedicated to prayer. They, they weren't required hours of prayer like we'd find within Islam, but just recommended times where people could come to the temple to pray. The day in Jewish culture, it began at 6 a.m. at sunrise. So the third hour would have been 9 a.m., first time that we would go to pray. The sixth hour would be noon, with the ninth hour of prayer occurring around the evening sacrifice, approximately 3 p.m. So it's the afternoon when Peter and John make their way to the temple, and we should ask ourselves, why the ninth hour? Now, though we're not actually told why, I think there's a clue buried in the Gospel of John. John 19, verse 30, we're told that it was the ninth hour that Jesus did something interesting. That at the ninth hour, when the sacrifices were going to the temple, that Jesus cried out from Golgotha, what? It is finished. A prayer of Jesus. It could very well be that this is the reason that Peter and John decided that they'd go pray at the temple based upon this simple reality. It's just a theory. Luke continues to set the scene by telling us that as these two men are going to the temple to pray, that a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried. They had laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, and he was there to ask alms from those who entered the temple. As Peter and John make their way into the temple precincts, they would enter first through what was called the Court of the Gentiles. From there, they would make their way through one of nine gates into the inner court of the women before then making their way into the court of men to pray. So this is the progression working their way through the temple. According to the temple construction, we know that from the court of the Gentiles into the court of the women, nine gates existed. There were four in the north that you could enter from the outer court of the Gentiles into the court of women. There were four from the south, and there was one gate from the east, one gate from the east, and this gate was referred to as the gate called Beautiful. Josephus describes this gate as being made of fine Corinthian brass, that it was 75 feet high with huge double doors. It's a massive, massive door. He also says that it was so beautiful that it, was, that it greatly excelled any of the doors that were only covered with silver and gold. Though brass, it was just the craftsmanship. It was so awesome, so beautiful, that it, you couldn't add anything to it. Now, because of the disregard that the Jews had towards the Gentiles, you know, they did all kinds of crazy things in the outer court of the Gentiles. They didn't care about the Gentiles. The, the outer court of the Gentiles is where they were buying and selling, where they had made uh, Jesus' father's house into a den of thieves. They, they could care less about the Gentiles, and so they kind of, 
didn't even view it as being part of the temple, that it was the court of the women. That's where you would first go. And so this gate called Beautiful, this beautiful gate, this gate 75 feet tall, that would be as far into the temple precincts as this young man or this man, this lame man would have been allowed to go. He wouldn't have been allowed to go into the temple because his disease, his condition disqualified him made him a sinner, so he couldn't go in, but this is as close as he could go, which was a great place to ask for alms because, well, I mean, religious people on their way to worship God, looking to take care of the practical needs of someone that's lame. What do we know about this man? From the text, we know his condition defined his reality or his identity. (laughs) We don't have his name, do we? The man is just simply known as the lame man who was lame from his mother's womb. We know that this was a condition that the man had been born with. And sadly, according to Acts 4, verse 22, we're also told that it's a condition he had lived with from birth for 40 years. This was not a recent uh, condition that came into the man's life. As we'll also see in a moment, Dr. Luke indicates that his lameness was not the result of a paralysis Uh, because of a disease or some kind of damage done uh, to the spinal cord or to the neck, but rather that this man, his condition was a result of the reality that he had a birth defect, a birth defect that hindered the development of his ankle and feet bones. And because the religious society viewed these kind of physical ailments as the result of sin, now it wouldn't have been his sin, but the sin of his parents. It's why he was born the way that he was This lame man was unclean, he was a sinner, he was condemned, he was ostracized, he was refused entry into the temple, he had to sit there and beg. So his condition, it made him who he was. But we also know that his condition determined his lifestyle because of his inability to work, to walk. The best this man could do for himself was to have friends carry him to this gate where he would sit all day long and beg for charity, for alms. And that day, alms, they, they were a way that the religious people would demonstrate their goodness, their benevolence. According to Acts 3, verse 10, since it had been more than 40 years that this man had been engaged in this uh, particular operation of being carried to this particular gate and sitting there, that he had actually become kind of a staple of the temple scene. You see, everyone knew for 40 years, this is what the man had been doing. He would have been sitting at the same gate, the same place, every single day, doing the same thing, begging. People knew who he was. Everybody, every good Jew who would be making two or three trips to the temple for various feasts, they would come in as a kid. Everyone knew who this man was. He was familiar His condition defined his identity. His condition determined his lifestyle. And as Peter and John are about to enter the temple, this lame man did what he does to everyone that was coming for prayer. He asked for alms. He asked for a gift. There was nothing deliberate, according to the text, about his request. And yet, the reaction of Peter and John, well, it's fascinating. Luke tells us, verse 4, and fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, look at us. The Greek literally means that Peter said that, that, he, that he, his first reaction was that he fastened his eyes upon the man. 
I mean, once again, somebody that he's passed numerous times, day after day, week after week, trip after trip, since he was a kid. Maybe he had given this man an alm before, maybe he, he didn't, but something was different here. They're going into the temple, this man's crying out for alms, and Peter turns, like something triggers. He turns and he fastens, he hones in. Literally, Peter stares the man down. Since everything points to the reality that both Peter and John were familiar with the man, we should ask ourselves, we should consider, what was different? Like, what was it that prompted this dynamic duo to now address a man they had passed numerous times before without doing anything? The answer, unlike the many times before, in this moment, Peter experienced a prompting of the Holy Spirit to act. This is what's new. Over and over and over again, he would go by and no word from God. But in this moment, he hears a familiar sound. There's a moving of the spirit within his heart. He turns, he locks in, beacon, he hones in. He's gonna shoot a torpedo. Like Peter is just in the zone because the spirit has prompted him. And that prompting, we should note, was confirmed by whom? John. So Peter's like focused in. John's looking at Peter. There's the same sensation, the same awareness within John, they're in sync, they're in lockstep, same Holy Spirit. And so there's a confirmation within John that Peter, yeah, we're supposed to do something here. And I love this because the development, it gives us an interesting insight into how gifts of the Holy Spirit operate. Now we've mentioned this before, but there are many, many, many gifts that are simply a manifestation a supernatural infusing, if you will, of the very personality that God has already equipped us with. But there are other gifts, gifts of healing, gifts like this one that are not only provided by the Spirit, but are guided by the Spirit in certain moments and for certain specific purposes. Let me ask, if Peter could heal people at will, Like we see often people who claim to have the gift exercise it. You just bring them up, I'll slay them all down, right? Doesn't matter, I got the gift. I can just zap, 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 like at will. If I don't like you, I just don't have to zap you because I don't like you and you can just deal with it. Enjoy that cancer, I'm not zapping you, right? I mean, like we get this idea that certain gifts, like the gifts of healing, like we can just pull out at will, I can roll with it as as. Yeah, however I want, to my own inclination, but no. If Peter could do that, right, then what was stopping him from, from healing everyone? I mean, I mean, really, we should also kind of consider that Jesus had passed by this man before, too, on many occasions, and yet he had not been healed. And we know Jesus' heart is huge. He loves everyone. He desires, like there were times that Jesus would stay up all night healing people. You see, the reality is that what makes this moment different is that the Spirit of God also working in the heart of this man, and we're not privy to a lot of that, told Peter and John, go now. This is it. And there was a moving, a specific time for a specific purpose. So we're told that the man... Peter says, look at us. The man gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Consider for a moment. What was this lame man expecting? 
Well, the answer is simple. He was expecting the very thing he had asked for, alms. Look at us. And he's like, sweet. He's grabbing his hat, you know, his Shriner hat. He's turning and he's like, ringing my bell. I'm going to get something right here. This is great. I didn't have to stand out in front of Kroger and make people feel awkward. Like I could just, you're good. So he was expecting alms. But what would he get? Now, I'm going to ruin the story for you. Spoiler alert. The man gets healed. I know, I totally ruined it for you. Like we were tracking along, and I've already given you the end. But no, so, so he's asking for alms. He's expecting alms. But what happens? He gets something that he's not even expecting. You know, I love this about God. I really do. This man gave them his attention expecting to receive something. <laughs> Though what he expected to receive was only a shadow of what he could have asked for. He could have been crying out, heal me. But instead, God accepted his small demonstration of expectancy, even expectancy in the wrong thing, as an act of faith, only to then proceed to supersede his expectation by healing him of his condition. Consider, if this man could expect small and God was still willing to give big, Imagine what might happen in our lives if we come to God with large expectations. Do you sell yourself short? I mean, I mean, really, consider. Did you crawl out of bed this morning? Some of you showered, a lot of you didn't. <laughs> and come to Calvary 316 this morning. Did you come expecting God to work in your life? Are you sitting there with any expectation at all? Consider. May we be challenged that if we want God to do something big in each of us, that maybe we should expect large, that our expectation should be larger. Don't settle for less. This man expected a little. God dumped out onto him. May we expect big hoping for big things. Then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have. And this man's probably like bummed out at this point. Like, frowny face. Jerk, get my attention. I could be getting money from someone else. Silver and gold I do not have. But what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Question, what did Peter really mean when he said, silver and gold I do not have? You know, there's actually a lot of misconceptions to this. First, there are some people that believe that Peter was implying poverty. Like, he was literally telling a man, like, listen, I'm as broke as you are. Like, I don't have any money at all. So now let me give you what I got. Like, that he's broke. But the problem with this is that that's not, the context that Luke kind of gives us. That's not the impression that Luke gives us. Like Peter and John are leaders within the church and we're just told at the end of the previous chapter that what had the church just done? That they had sold everything that they had, that they had pulled together all of their resources. A church of 3,120 people was not a church broke. 
Like, so wait a second. If they had all of this money pulled together, silver and gold, I do not have. No, no, he probably had some silver and gold. So I don't really like the first concept that they were just broke as a joke, that they were living in poverty. Christians will live in poverty, and, and we see poverty, but in this instance, I don't think you can claim it. Others, to kind of reason and rationalize and work through that particular complexity, they believe that Peter was simply saying he didn't have any money on him. And there is some evidence in the Greek to indicate that this might be an option, that Peter's kind of saying, listen, I left my wallet at home, man. So sorry. Like, do you take a charge card? Because my wallet's at home. My billfold's not on me. I don't, you know, he's looking around. John's looking around like, I don't have any money. We don't have anything to give you. So sorry. But what I got, like in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. It was somehow an indication, silver and gold I do not have, because, well, they just didn't have it at the moment. It was somewhere else. But I like the third option. The third option is that it could be that Peter was saying, that the money he had wasn't for this man. Like that literally, silver and gold I do not have for you. But what I do have for you, I give. You know, not only is this third option most consistent with the Greek construction of the sentence, but it also fits within the context of the passage and the generalized philosophy of benevolence and money management that we see in the early church. For just a moment, look again, just one page back. Acts 2, verses 44 and 45. This communism that existed within the church. We're told very specifically, now all who believed were together. And, and you might want to underline or highlight all who believed. They had, so all who believed were together. And then according to the way it's written, all who believed had all things in common, all who believed sold their possessions and goods. All who believed divided them amongst all who believed as those who believed had need. That's the way that it's actually written out. That's what it's indicating. And the passage seems clear that in this instance, the act of pulling together all of their resources was to enable the church to provide for whom? All who believed for the church. It may be that Peter is saying that the funds that he has are not allocated to be given to this man. Why? Since this man was not part of all who believe. Now, don't get me wrong. I think there is nothing wrong with the church incorporating social programs that benefit and bless all men, whether they're in the fold or not in the fold. But I do think that there is solid biblical evidence to point to the reality that this work should come secondary to programs aimed at taking care of our own. I encourage you to find a biblical example contrary to this reality. You see, in Scripture, benevolence was never used as it is today in the church. It was never used as a mechanism for evangelism. Benevolence instead was a manifestation of an individual's relationship with God and a mechanism for meeting, church, meeting needs within the church. At Calvary 3.16, as the Lord continues to provide for our church, I would love to partner with organizations that feed the poor, that clothe the poor, that work within the community, whether you're Christian or non-Christian. But I will tell you, based upon 
a biblical understanding, those funds will come secondary to taking care of the poor in our midst. You see, when it comes to right now, because we don't have a lot of money, the majority, the vast majority of our present benevolence is aimed at helping you. Because there's lots of you that have lost a job and needed help paying the mortgage or needed a power bill or needed some food. Our heart is to take care of our family first. And then with the increase, take care of those outside of the fold. And I see that this is what's happening. Silver and gold, I don't have for you. But I got something better anyway. You see, we, we understand that Peter is telling the man that silver and gold, I could deal with your present situation, but I would instead rather deal with your core problem. This is why Peter continues, what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. I hope you understand. The church can engage in all kinds of good programs, but the best thing, the most important thing, the thing that the church has to offer the lost world more than anything is a transformation that can occur in the life of an individual who comes to know Jesus. We can, we can clothe the clothless and they still go to hell. We can put a cup of water in those that are thirsty and they'll still thirst for more. The best thing we can do is to deal with eternity first and then begin to address, once they're in the fold, their present needs. Don't overlook a simple point here. Peter tells the man what? It's easy to overlook this, but, but note, he says, what I have, I give you. And I don't want to get nitpicky here, but I hope you understand that Peter offered this man an experience that he himself had already personally experienced. Peter's telling the man, my life has been changed by Jesus. The power of Jesus in my life. And I want you to have what I've experienced. I hope you realize you cannot offer someone something you don't have yourself. Verse 7. So Peter took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And so the man, leaping up, he stood and he walked, and he entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. Imagine the moment. Because none of you laughed when we read through that, which means none of you are still in the scene. So let me paint it for you of what's actually happening here. The place is packed. The hour of prayer. Peter and John have honed in on this lame man. Peter has just given the man an impossible command. Like it was impossible for this man to rise up and walk. Why? Because he's lame. And to up the ante, Peter has also just given the command, how? In the name of Peter, Pontius Pope, Rise up and walk. No. He gives him a command, and then he tells him to do it in what? In the name of Jesus. Now, the church, it's new, it's fresh, it's exciting. It's experiencing momentum and growth. And in this moment, Peter just put it all on the line. 
I mean, if the man stood up, all was good. But if the man didn't stand up, the whole movement comes screeching to a halt. I can see the scene. Peter picks the man out. The man looks. Peter says, rise up and walk, and everything freezes. Kind of one of those Zach Moore saved by the bell timeout motions. Everything stops, and everyone's like now looking. Peter's standing there. The man's laying there. Peter's standing there. The man's laying there. John is kind of beginning to do this. Like, I'm sure. We don't, we don't know how much time, but whatever time, a few seconds, a minute, whatever. But whatever time exists between the end of verse 6 and the beginning of verse 7, I promise you, felt like an eternity for Peter. As the seconds of awkward inactivity pass, people start looking around. People are looking at Peter. I can imagine the conversation in his mind. Peter, people are thinking, what is Peter going to do? And I promise you that assaulting a handicapped man was not what anyone expected to come next. The phrase here, he took. So Peter's standing there. Everyone's looking. The man's laying there. And what does Peter do? He's not getting up, which now means that I've got to do something else. And we're told that he took the man by the right hand. The Greek word is piazzo. It literally means to apprehend for imprisonment. It's the, it's, it's the picture of someone being arrested, a cop grabbing a guy, throwing him on the hood of the car, and cuffing him. This is not like being tender and loving. This is Peter's, Peter like, oh, snap. This is what I got to do. And he jumps and tackles the man. Like, he's like, you're getting up, brother. You're not embarrassing me here. And then we're told that he lifted him up. So he grabs him. He violently takes hold of him. And then this phrase, he lifted him up, it literally means that he constructs or he erects the man as in like you're building a building. It's kind of like Peter grabs him violently. He picks him up. He kicks out one leg. He's like, dude, you're walking. This is going down. This is happening. And why would Peter do that? I mean, really, you have to assume that just like the Holy Spirit moved Peter to begin with, we really hope the Holy Spirit's moving him now. Like, let's just go on the record there. That it's not an issue of like trying to overcome my pride or like, oh, this is not good. Like, out of fear. Like, no, apparently he had just a, a gifting of faith. Paul describes this in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 9, that just in the moment, God spoke to him and just told him to do something out of the ordinary. Pick up, violently assault the guy in the wheelchair. You would have to have a gift of faith to do that. Because if the guy's still flopping around in your arms, then, then that just gets awkward. But I also think that isn't it true that sometimes people need help taking that first step of faith. I know in my own experiences, there have been times when I've been down and out and I've needed someone in boldness through a gift of faith to come to me and to grab hold of me and to pick me up, to give me a hand and say, no, 
this is not how it's going down. I love you enough. I don't care. You're lame. Like, what are you going to do about it? Like, I'm grabbing you and picking you up and kicking your butt, and we're going forward. God has more for you than this. You see, sometimes people need a hand when we lack faith. It's kind of like one of those, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief moments. And you know how sometimes the Lord helps our unbelief? He sends a person into our lives that's willing to grab hold and to pick us up and to move us forward. And what happens next, I am sure is a relief to old John. Don't forget, the introvert of the group is standing there thinking, ah, everyone's looking, oh no, I'm not sure about this, there's gotta be a different way, and Peter's just bold and thunderous, and John's like, oh, oh, and then he's like, rise up and walk, and Peter, and John's like, ah, like, and then as like awkward silence, like he's quickly wilting down into like nothing, and then when the guy is healed, John's like, knew it was gonna happen. <laughs> knew it all along, I can get your back, Pete, we're good. Immediately his feet and his ankle bones received strength. It means that they were, they were made solid, that they were firm, that they were strong. G. Campbell Morgan makes this observation. He says it so well, I, I'll just read it. Perhaps only medical men can fully appreciate the meaning of these words. They are particular, technical words of a medicine man. The word translated feet is only used by Luke. It occurs nowhere else. It indicates his description between different parts of the human heel. The phrase ankle bones is again a medical phrase. It's found nowhere else. The word leaping up describes the coming suddenly into socket of something that was previously out of place. The articulation of a joint and then in a very careful medical description, he describes what happens in connection to this man. A miracle occurs. And we're told that all the people saw him walking, praising God. And they knew that it was he who sat begging for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. In conclusion, I want to consider this story from kind of an allegorical angle. And there are four components that are important for us. First, the man's physical condition was directly attributed to sin. Sin and the lameness it had created had defined his identity. It had determined his lifestyle. Sin had dominated the man's life. He sat there as the world was literally passing him by. Sin had crippled him. Secondly, religion proved powerless to help the man in any real way. Religion had condemned him because of his condition. Religion said that it was because of sin, but religion had offered no remedy on how to overcome his condition. Religion ostracized him from God by refusing interest, entrance into the temple. Religion left him only begging for help, but no one could give it to him. But then came Peter and John. They knew the only remedy for the man's condition was not a temporary life improvement by giving him a few bucks, but rather a permanent life change brought on only in the name of Jesus and the transformative power that we find in his name. And though the man's expectations were low, God was still willing to work. Even when the man struggled with the command to rise up and walk, God had provided friends that were willing to go to extremes, that didn't care what he thought, 
to help him experience the healing that God wanted for him. And fourth, he immediately, the result, he became a witness to the world of the risen Lord. I mean, consider it. Everyone knew the man. And since this was the case, everyone now witnessed the change. Everyone knew that he was a lame man begging. Now everyone was like, holy Toledo. Not that there's anything holy about Toledo. It's kind of a stupid city. But anyway, I don't know where that phrase comes from. But they're like, he was lame and begging, and now he's running and leaping. You see, they all knew that the condition he had, he had lived with from birth. Everyone saw the transformation. Him being a witness wasn't something he had to conjure up or do. He was a witness. Everyone knew that there was no human remedy for his condition. So everyone recognized a supernatural work had occurred in his life. And please understand, friends, sin, it's a crippling disease. Whether it be by sin inherited or sin acquired, the sin of nature or the sin of your decisions, its effects severely limit your ability to live the life that you've been created to enjoy. Sadly, as with this man, religion provides no remedy for the sinner. Religion provides no upward mobility for the lame. Religion only leaves the sinner outside the gates of heaven begging for help. The religions of the world. And there are many. The world is quite a religious place, but they are doing nothing more than facilitating a race of cripples seeking to scale the never-ending summit of Mount Righteousness. You know, the core issue with self-righteousness is that it doesn't address the issue of self, the sinful nature of self, the world. This lame man, the only remedy, the permanent remedy is Jesus. Jesus and he alone can cause the lame to walk and leap and run. Only Jesus restores a man so that he can truly experience what life was actually designed and created by God to be. Only Jesus can provide a way into the temple of heaven so that we might praise and exalt and have access and encounter God. The world ignores the condition of man. Religion condemns man because of his condition, but it is only Jesus and he alone who came to seek and to save the lost. And when Jesus transforms the life of the sinner, we see it produces a change that cannot be denied. The transformed life seen by all who knew your former lame life is the greatest testimony to the power of the resurrected Jesus. In Acts 1, Jesus left us with a commission, right? Go out and reach the world. In Acts 2, we saw the functional purpose of the church, equipping Christians to fulfill this commission, to go into the world, to reach the lost through the power of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 3, we're given a practical example of what this should look like, of what the activity should look like in each of our lives. I think it's interesting. The day is not Sunday. The event, the venue is not the church. Peter and John are not wearing their clerical collars. They're just two dudes who love Jesus 
and are going about their day. A very common, out of the ordinary exercise to go pray at the ninth hour. And yet we see here the Holy Spirit move and work and reach this man. This morning, please consider, do you have friends or family that are crippled by the weight of their sin? Are you waiting for them to come to church? I hate to break it to you. It'll take a long time for them to army crawl or barrel roll their way to church. They're lame. They got no motion in the legs. Like they need help. If you have a friend that is crippled by sin, is the spirit prompting you to reach out a hand to that person in the name of Jesus? Are you willing to offer them the very experience that has changed your life? And if this is the case, as with Peter, A, what are you waiting for? But B, I exhort you to be bold and to take drastic steps and act accordingly when necessary. Some of you know people that are lame and crippled and you care too much about what they think about you. May you be bold this week. Not just to bring them to church, but to reach into their lives and say, in the name of Jesus, God has something better. To, for you to be a minister of the gospel of Jesus through the power of the Spirit. But I should also ask, are you? Are you here this morning crippled under the weight of your sin? Whether or not you came to church this morning really expecting anything from God, I pray that he's speaking into your life through the darkness and that you have ears to hear these incredible words. Rise up and walk. And if you need a friend to reach down, to give a hand, to help you straighten out the legs, please come talk to me after the service. I'd love to be that person. And so, Father...